So we're picking back up our series, The Table of Undeserving Friends. Uh, and as you know, in the series, we've been pulling up a chair at God's table because one of the best uh, metaphors for God's uh, kingdom in the scripture is a great banquet feast. And so we've been taking in the sights. We've been trying to lock eyes with the guests that are sitting around us and listen to their stories that we might learn more about God's welcoming grace. And, and so far, we've met a variety of people. We've met men and women. Uh, we've met people of utter weakness and profound power. We've met uh, people by name, uh, Mephibosheth and Mary and Martha and Solomon and Abigail, and also unnamed figures like the Queen of Sheba, a widow, and even a sex trade worker. Uh, each person has given us a, a different lens and picture into God's welcoming grace. And as we listen to their stories, we're trying to learn what it means for us to welcome others as Christ has welcomed us. Uh, this week, we're meeting another person. Uh, his name is Naaman, and he's a surprising person on the list. Uh, we learned about him in the reading we heard this morning from 2 Kings chapter 5 in this brilliant uh, encounter with the prophet Elisha. Uh, now, Naaman, he was no ordinary guy. He was a man of stature. He was a man of power. He was the commander in the army of the king of Syria. He was great. He was known. He was favored. Uh, he was powerful within a nation outside of God's people, Israel. So indeed, uh, he was even the, the mighty destructive arm of a Gentile nation that had been oppressing God's people. And so to God's people, Naaman was the personification of evil. He would be the last person they would expect to see at God's great banquet feast. And yet there he is, Naaman, invited by God himself. And so we have to ask, what does Naaman have to teach about God's welcoming grace? Absolutely no exertion of power can earn us a seat in God's kingdom. The way into God's kingdom is only through weakness, not strength. The way into God's kingdom is only through weakness, not strength. This is the big idea this morning. Uh, this was a remarkably difficult lesson for Naaman to learn, and it's also a remarkably difficult lesson for us to learn as well. And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, everything will be on the screen. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man, with his master and high in favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So as I've said, Naaman, he was great. He was highly favored. He was a mighty man of valor. And the, stress, uh, the, the text stresses this. Right? It wants us to get this, that by any measure, Naaman had attained greatness. He was the man, uh, but he was a leper. And there's a huge tension here. Uh, Naaman was a great, great man, but he was a leper. In our modern mindset, you know, it's really easy to gloss this over. Uh, we try not to define people by their illnesses. We do the best we can not to stigmatize people with chronic disease or people who are terminally ill. Uh, but a few diseases can still make it through the cracks and carry some stigma, for example. If you're a 33-year-old male in pretty decent health and, and uh, you develop pink eye, uh, people will stay away from you. I discovered this last week. Uh, I managed to go 33 years without ever 
contracting this terrible disease. Thank you to my daughter. I've learned to wash my hands significantly better. But it's an embarrassing disease. I was the guy, I just wore sunglasses all week. Didn't matter what time of the day. It didn't matter if I was inside or outside. I just wore sunglasses. But I did discover that the song, uh, I Wear My Sunglasses at Night, was inspired by Corey Hart having pink eye. I don't know if that's true, but, you know, I just felt like he got me. He got the stigma. Um, Now, this is a lighthearted example of how certain diseases carry stigma, but throughout human history, we've attached stigma to even more significant diseases. Uh, Think about when the HIV pandemic hit in the early 80s. I know most of you weren't alive, but how did society respond? Fear, quarantine, uh, accusations about the the person's uh, personal life. Uh, so there, it was so stigmatized, so much so that even into the early 90s, Freddie Mercury, he was the, the lead singer of the band Queen, he didn't announce that he had HIV and AIDS until the day before he died. The disease, it carried that much stigma, so much so that even a decade after its outbreak, a great rock star like Freddie Mercury almost went to his grave having never told people he has the disease. We need to understand that leprosy, in the ancient world, carries that much stigma. It was a dangerous, life-threatening disease, highly contagious. Uh, In their time and age, it was incurable, although we've made advances now and can treat people. Back then, there was no treatment. Um, Just to, to spell out leprosy a little bit, it causes numbness, skin lesions, severe pain, weak muscles, uh, even paralysis of the hands and feet. It can cause blindness. Uh, Parts of limbs can fall off because you don't feel wounds. It's a brutal, debilitating disease. It's even painful to look at. The problem for Naaman is that there is no way to hide leprosy. It's a very visible disease. And there is only one treatment, treatment, uh, wait and see. You know, it might be some other skin disease, and in that case, you'll get better. Uh, But if it's not, then you're going to get worse. And in the meantime, since it's incredibly contagious, uh, people with leprosy were cut off from society. They were quarantined. Uh, You became untouchable. Uh, You were stigmatized as an outsider, uh, someone who is possibly cursed or someone being punished by God. So, Naaman was a great man, but he was a leper. He casts a tragic shadow over his greatness. Here's a mighty man with great power, yet totally powerless to the disease that's robbing him, robbing him of his health and his ability. Naaman was favored and known, and now leprosy was robbing him of his standing within society. It was slowly and painfully taking away everything from Naaman. So we want to connect the best we can with the shame Naaman would have felt over this disease, a shame that... Uh, surely was similar to what Freddie Mercury felt. Because the stigma attached to the diseases in uh, their time and their place, uh, it would define you. As the text says, uh, it, it doesn't say Naaman was a man who is suffering from leprosy. It says he was a leper. It defined him. And this is our introduction to Naaman. And it's a tragic introduction. But the story goes on. Uh, verses 2 through 6. Now, One of the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. She worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went. 
taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. A little girl, a refugee, a servant, uh, yet she profoundly cares and loves Naaman. And so she tells Naaman's wife about this prophet in Samaria, Elisha, and Naaman's wife talks to Naaman, and, and Naaman listens. He's willing to try anything, and so he goes to the king. I love how he sums it up. Thus and so, the little girl said. Try that the next time you summarize a conversation with someone. It does not go well. But thus and so, he said to the king, and the king said, look, I want to help you out. I'll, I'll send this letter to the king of Israel. Uh, what's beautiful and easily overlooked in this passage is how Naaman had a community still that saw past his illness. And they still saw him, people who didn't allow the stigma to define Naaman. He had a community that desired to see him made well, spanning from a little servant girl to the king himself. Now here's where it gets interesting. Naaman's approach is very fascinating. When he heads to visit the prophet Elisha, he brings a letter from the king of Syria. He brings loads of money and resources, and even an entourage. And I don't know why, but I just picture uh, the entourage in Tupac's California love video or, you know, kind of Mad Max-esque, like dystopian wasteland entourage descending on Israel. I don't know why. Anyways, um, Naaman, he approaches, though, this problem, this leprosy, from a place of power and authority and wealth. The way Naaman approaches the king of Israel is also a tad manipulative. Uh, he's putting pressure on a weaker foreign nation. It's a power play. Uh, he's essentially saying, do you know who you're dealing with? Do you, see what I, do you know what I'm capable of? Do you see who's with me? Heal me or else. And the king of Israel understands this. Look at verses 6 through 7. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I've sent my servant Naaman to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Obviously, that's not the full story. Right? Uh, Naaman sincerely is seeking after healing, uh, but his approach is also problematic given the context. Uh, you got to remember, Syria and Israel had been at war with one another, uh, but Syria was stronger. They were more technologically advanced. They had the upper hand. And the king of Israel, he's afraid. He thinks that the king of Syria is just looking for any just cause to come and attack Israel yet again. He thinks it's a political trap. And so the king of Israel's words are very telling. You know, uh, Am I God? Am I God to kill and make alive? This, this is an impossible request. Only God can do this. And so the king tears his clothes in distress. He enters into a state of mourning. But although he doesn't realize it, he actually understands Naaman's predicament. The king has a lot of power, but not the power to cure leprosy, just like Naaman. But politics and fear blinds him to this mutually shared human experience. The story goes on, verses 8 through 10. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be made clean. I just love Elisha's boldness here. Uh, what are you worrying about? 
You know, King of Israel, what are you worrying about? Send him to me. Send him my way. And so Naaman heads with his horses and his chariots. Once again, Naaman, he's exerting his power. Uh, he's, he's showing that he's a mighty uh, warrior, a commander with an impressive entourage. And, and he's making a personal appearance. And this is a big deal. Over and over again, the text wants us to see one thing. Naaman uses his power and influence as a currency to get what he wants. And here's the cheeky prophetic part. Elisha sends his messenger to greet Naaman. Say you knew someone important was coming to visit you. Say it was Pontus, you know, the president of the United States of America. Obama, he's coming to your door and in, in limos and escalades and, and sirens and, you know, the secret service, the whole nine yards. And, and, and you know he's coming and he's coming to see you. You know, you of all people, you. And it's not his representative. It's, it's Obama in the flesh. That would say a lot. That would communicate a lot that he's taking the time to make a personal appearance to you. But instead, you send someone out on your behalf to greet him uh, with a message that just says, hey, Mr. President, really glad you took the time to come and see me. Sorry I couldn't be there. Thank you. Uh, while you're in Vancouver, you might want to check out English Bay. I hear it's really beautiful this time of the year. Uh, this is not how you treat the President of the United States. If he wants to see you face-to-face, -face, he's going to see you face-to-face. -face. Um, this would be an insult. Remember, Naaman is well-known. He's a famous commander. He's a man of reputation and favor and power, if you haven't caught on to that yet. And Elisha sends a messenger to him. It's an insult. You know, what? Does he not have the time to meet with Naaman face to face? Or does he somehow think he stands above Naaman? Naaman would be insulted by these actions of Elijah. And, and the message sent is really basic. Go and bathe in the Jordan seven times. It's insulting. It's essentially Elijah saying, go take a bath, Naaman. You have just not washed well enough. And look at Naaman's response in verses 11 through 12. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God, wave his hand over the place, cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Understandably, Naaman's angry. He's been insulted. He's outraged. He's, he feels degraded. Go and take a bath in Israel's waters? We've got we to listen carefully to his words, though. Elijah would surely come to me. You know, he expected a personal appearance, and he expected a big show. Elijah would call upon the name of the Lord his God. He expected, you know, pomp and circumstance and, and a big ceremony, and that Elijah would wave his hand over the leprosy, and that there would be this miraculous, on-the-spot healing. But this, a lowly messenger, comes and says, essentially, go take a bath in the Jordan. The way in which Elijah's communicating with Naaman uh, communicates this, like, your strength and your power isn't that impressive, Naaman. Your reputation doesn't matter to me. And Naaman, he can't take it. He can't take it. Uh, if he's going to be healed, he wants a show of power. He wants a process that recognizes his greatness and status. If he's going to be healed, it's not going to be in the humbling bath in Israel's insignificant waters. The problem is Naaman's pride is getting in the way. Fortunately for Naaman, he surrounded himself with some good people. Look at verses uh, 13 through 15. His servants came to him and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? 
Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Naaman's servants prevail upon him. They convince him uh, to turn around, to humble himself. And he goes and he bathes himself in the Jordan and he's miraculously healed. And he heads straight back to Elisha and says, Behold, I know there's no God in all the earth but in Israel. Big words, really big words. He declares there's no God anywhere else. Only God can be found in this little nation of Israel. But what brought him to declare this? Why such a big declaration? You know, he came uh, to Israel looking for a prophet with magical hands, a, a, a cure. You know, and, and then he was sent away from Elisha's house. He was sent into the most insignificant and ordinary river that Naaman could fathom. And there he does the most ordinary action. He dips himself in the river seven times. You see, Naaman, he's not cured by some special power inherent in Elijah or because of any special powers of the Jordan. Naaman is cured by the hands of the living God with no prophet in sight. And it's the directness of God's actions in Naaman's life that convinces him of God's reality. As the king of Israel said, only God can kill and make alive. And Naaman experiences the truth of this reality firsthand. Only God could cure his leprosy, no one else, and only the God of Israel, no one else. So far, so good. This is the sort of story we like. We love seeing people come to a, a, a revelation of God's character and his transforming power. But then Naaman says in verse 15, so now accept a present from your servant. So now accept a present from your servant. Naaman, he's still trying to live from a, a place of power and control. He's been healed, but he still feels like he has to offer something either to be in relationship with the God of Israel or to retroactively pay for what has been done. There has to be something he can do to deserve it and warrant it. He must give a gift to Elisha. But Elisha says in verse 16, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And again, Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. Twice, Elijah refuses to accept this gift. What's the risk? What's the risk if Elijah just accepts a little offering from Naaman? The risk is that Naaman won't understand that the gift of salvation is free. It cannot be bought. It's not from kings or prophets, nor might or power, but a free gift from God. Someone can live with all the accomplishments in the world, but that's not why God would show anyone grace. You see, Naaman, he's being forced to confront that it was in weakness and powerlessness and helplessness that God saved him. Naaman cannot exert power to be welcomed by God. He can't show up at God's door with an entourage and expect to find his way into God's kingdom simply because he's impressive. God only saves Naaman and heals him of his leprosy in sheer grace. What makes Naaman worthy then? Nothing. Nothing but the fact that 
that God chooses to love Naaman for all he is, that God chooses to heal him, that God chooses to show grace and mercy. And like Naaman, this sort of extravagant and free grace and love can be very difficult for us to accept. Because we want to resist admitting that we're weak and helpless and powerless. Uh, We want to have something to offer. You know, for Naaman, it was a letter from the king of Syria. It was was wealth and gifts after he was healed. Uh, For us, what we love to offer is our uh, moral report card. We love to offer our moralism. Uh, We like to think that because we've kept all the right rules, because we can check off the right boxes, that God will accept us because we're pretty good people, which is the real belief. The real belief is that we're actually pretty good people, inherently good, and that We're not all that bad that our sin isn't leading to death and that healing isn't beyond our reach. And we think, you know what? Even if there's a God, he'll see me. He'll see I lived a pretty good life. And he'll see I was a decent moral person. Therefore, God will accept me. But if we think that our self-perceived goodness and moralism can somehow impress God, then like Naaman, we have to come to terms with the reality of verse 1. Go back to verse 1. Look at it again. Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. You see, Naaman's greatness, his his status, his favor, his wealth, all of these things are actually from the hands of God. It's God's uh, common grace. God had been using Naaman for his purposes in the world. God didn't save Naaman because of the things that God had bestowed upon Naaman. In the same way, God isn't going to save you because you're a good person or a moral person. If you're any of these things, it's only because God's grace upon your life. If God is going to save you, it's going to be because you recognize that there's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to deserve God's forgiveness and grace. It's been offered for free, and it can only be received by faith. What I think is just beautiful about this story in Kings is is how the real heroes are Naaman's servants. It's the little girl who tells him about the prophet. It's his servants who convince him to do as Elijah instructed. It's those in cultural positions of powerlessness and weakness and insignificance that actually lead Naaman towards God's healing and welcoming grace. It should be no surprise to us then that when uh, Naaman is at his most humbled moment, it's precisely then that God welcomes him and heals him. As the scriptures say in the Proverbs, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But why? Why does God want us to step out of positions of power and out of what we can offer and into places of need and humility? Why does God want that for us? Because God wants us, not our accomplishment, not what we think we can bring to the table. He wants us. He wants us to accept what he's done for us in our places of greatest need. The gospel, it pushes against our fundamental human nature. We think we can earn a seat at God's table, that we can muster up our own worthiness, that there has to be some sort of strength we can use to find a way in. But it's only through our helplessness and our desperation for God to give us life when we can't possibly find life, that we would even find a way into his kingdom. Our position before God is always that of neediness and vulnerability. Because the gospel says, it doesn't matter how good you are. 
how much you volunteer, how much money you make or give away, how cool you are, how many followers you have on Twitter or Instagram, you know, what your sphere of influence may be. None of these things matter. They might be useful, but they don't matter. You cannot save yourself. You cannot warrant God's welcoming grace. He simply offers it to you for free with no basis. That's what makes it grace. You can't deserve it. It wouldn't be grace then. You can only accept it in all of its extravagance, and that's what makes it grace. It's free, it's abundant, and it saves you. The point of the table of undeserving friends is that we are all undeserving. We're undeserving friends of God. A man like Naaman, a man with great standing of favor, an entourage, a king of kings, it doesn't matter at God's table. It may be impressive, sure, but it doesn't warrant his seat. Because the table is not about the guest's accomplishments. It's about the host. It's all about Jesus. You see, at God's table, we recognize that it's Christ's authority and not our own that brought us to the table. That it's Christ's wealth and not our own that brought us to the table. That it's Christ's glory and abundance and not our own that brings us to the table. We find our seat at God's table because of what has been done for us in our places of greatest need. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, 5 3, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up what we could never fathom. Quality with God, you know, the, the glory of eternal love, you know, all the power and status and abundance beyond our imagination. And he emptied himself. He became a servant. And he humbled himself to the point of death. You see, when Naaman humbled himself, he gained what he didn't deserve, healing in life. When Christ humbled himself, he also gained what he didn't deserve. But he gained suffering and death. But it's only because Christ humbled himself to the point of death that he gave up everything for us, even to the point of a shaming death on the cross, that we can find healing and life and forgiveness and wholeness in God's presence. It's only through the direct actions of God intervening within human history through the cross of Christ that we're saved. Jesus did all of this to make a way so that we can find a seat at God's table, so that we can share in his power and his status and his abundance and his love and his mercy and his grace. And when this sinks in, that a relationship with God isn't about what we can do or offer, but about what has been done for us, it changes us. This is what humbles us. We see his greatness and his mercy, his unending grace, his unconditional love and the lengths that he would go to reach us and his power to conquer leprosy and death and to forgive sin. And we look at all of this and it humbles us. True humility, as C.S. Lewis put it, uh, isn't thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking about ourselves less. And the only way we think about ourselves less is if we get caught up not in our accomplishments, but the accomplishments of Christ, about what he's done 
about how it's only about the host of God's table that we find a spot there for celebrating him. So part of what it means then as a community that wants to welcome people as Christ has welcomed us is to model this sort of Christ-likeness. You see, this moment in Naaman's life, it's full of barriers. It's full of barriers. You have stigmas around disease. You have political problems. You have fear. You have pride. And these are all hindrances in the story to his possible healing. And all these things get in the way of us welcoming one another too. What we see is it's those in Naaman's story who are lowly and humble that move past these barriers. It's the servants that care well for him. It's Naaman at his humblest that the barrier is removed between him and God. But the only way we can become that sort of community, a humble community that welcomes one another and doesn't look at the things that could divide us or look at people in terms of status and what they can offer, that we would welcome anyone at all is first, that we come to terms with the fact that we are undeserving friends of God. There is nothing we did to warrant Christ giving his life on the cross for us. And second, that we can't become humble simply by trying. That misses the point. This sort of Christ-likeness is an overflow when we get caught up in the profound glory and humility of Christ himself. And so if we want to welcome others as Christ has welcomed us, we have to know just how he has welcomed us.